I own many Bibles, but curiously, I didn't purchase any of them. They were all given to me, almost all by Protestant Christians. And considering the history of Protestant Christianity, that impulse to freely offer God's word makes a lot of sense. Dr. John Fia takes up the institutionalized giving of Bibles in a primarily American context in his new book, The Bible Cause, A History of the American Bible Society, Oxford University Press, 2017. Through meticulously researched and carefully constructed chronological narrative of the American Bible Society, Fia expertly touches upon themes of foreign relations, gender, race, technology, and the changing American religious landscape from just after the American Revolution to today. This fascinating work would therefore be of interest to general readers and to experts in the field, and is particularly noteworthy as it explores Christianity outside of traditional denominational lines. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to New Books in Christian Studies. I'm Dr. Franklin Rausch of Lander University, the host of the channel. Today, we'll be talking to Dr. John Fia about his new book, The Bible Cause, A History of the American Bible Society. John, welcome to the show. Hey, it's great to be with you, Frank. Thanks for having me. Well, thanks for joining us. Well, I wonder if you could tell us first just a little bit about yourself. Sure. I, um, I live out here in central Pennsylvania, out just outside of Harrisburg. Uh, the state capital, where I teach at Messiah College, which is about a 3,000-student uh, Christian liberal arts college. Um, I've been here for 16 years. Uh, I study American history. I have a Ph.D. from the State University of New York at Stony Brook from back in 1999. And since then, I have done a lot of research and writing on um, issues related to early American history uh, and American religion. Uh, I blog at uh, thewayofimprovement.com, which is a blog uh, devoted to history and politics and um, academic life, uh, where we get maybe three or 4,000 readers a day. So I see that as part of my kind of sort of sense of vocation, if you will. Uh, I teach uh, mostly in colonial American Revolution. Uh, I teach a course on Pennsylvania history. I, uh, I'm very interested also in uh, the teaching of history. So I teach courses in uh, teaching history for students interested in becoming uh, secondary school teachers or even even students going into museum work and so forth who want to learn how to best communicate uh, best best uh, practices for communicating the past. So I, I do a little bit of a little bit of everything. Uh, again, the nature of the college I teach at allows me to uh, be a little more free in kind of choosing the topics that I want to explore, both as a teacher uh, and a, and a scholar. So um, so yeah, so so that's who I am uh, professionally, and uh, it's great to be on the program. Oh well, thank you again for joining us. So, so I wonder. I mean, this is a like I said for our listeners, this is really a um, a fascinating book that John has written. And I think it, it has a particularly interesting story in how um, John came to write it. So could you tell us, how did you come to write this work? Yeah, it is a very interesting story. I've never written a book like this before. This is my fifth book and, and there's not been anything kind of close to this experience. Uh, and what happened was I was uh, contacted, I don't know, maybe, maybe, Three years before uh, I started writing the book, I was contacted by this organization known as the American Bible Society. Uh, I had written a book called Was America Founded as a Christian Nation, which really tackled a lot of these questions about religion and the founding and, you know, a lot of these kind of contemporary political questions about, you know, are we a Christian nation or not? And, you know, I had tried to 
bring some historical sensibility to that question in this book. And the American Bible Society was coming up on their 200th anniversary. So they invited me to come to New York City, where they were based at the time and where they were actually founded in 1816, and, and talk to them about you know, what the best way might be to celebrate the 200th anniversary of their organization. They're the oldest benevolent organization in the United States. So, you know, how do we how do we kind of celebrate the Bible? But they're also worried about not coming across as kind of fundamentalist or Bible bashers. Right. So what's the best way to kind of celebrate the history of the Bible in America without kind of coming across as an organization that has an agenda or is trying to fight the culture wars or something to that effect? So I, I served as a consultant. And then I guess about a year, maybe two years later, they consult, they contacted me again and asked me if I would be willing to write the 200th anniversary history of the American Bible Society. And in the conversations uh, that I had with them, it was obvious to me the kind of book that they wanted me to write, which would have been a very kind of popular uh, book that kind of praised the American Bible Society. Uh, they wanted me to, knowing that I was a Christian, I think they wanted me to kind of talk about, you know, here's what God did, you know, or God, you know, <laughs> yeah. it's kind of very kind of providential kind of history where God moved here and the Bible Society was formed and so forth. You know, and, and I think they wanted a kind of pop kind of coffee table type of book that they would be able to use to raise money and, you know, kind of something that something that sort of was not critical at all or, or deeply scholarly. And, uh, you know, I'm a scholar. Uh, I don't write those kinds of books. So I turned them down. And I guess it was about six months later that they contacted me again and said, you know, we've rethought this. We understand the kind of book you want to write. Um, we will you be willing to write the 200th history? We'll let you do it the way we want. You want. We'll give you complete academic freedom to do it. You choose the publisher. So that was a little more attractive to me because I found the American Bible Society to be a fascinating organization. Like I said, the oldest benevolent organization in in America. Uh, I thought I, I, I still believe the Bible has played a sort of essential role, fundamental role in the history of this country. Whatever you think about the Bible, you can't ignore its role. So I thought the American Bible Society would make a wonderful kind of institutional history, but also a window into, you know, the, the place of the Bible and Christianity, particularly Protestant Christianity uh, in 19th and 20th century America. Uh, that was the kind of book I, I was kind of pumped up to write. And uh, because of the academic freedom they gave me, uh, they, they, I negotiated, they gave me full access to all their records, which are just incredibly comprehensive uh, very detailed, especially for the 19th century. So I got full access, unlimited access to the archives, their archives, and uh, and approached Oxford University Press, a respectable academic press that also publishes kind of more trade-oriented books. We got a contract. Uh, American Bible Society was happy, uh, at least at the time, and uh, I set forth to, to write this book. Now, the problem was this was... Um, you know, this would have been the anniversary was 2016, the 200th anniversary. This was sort of to two, mid 2014, I think, that we made the agreement. So, you know, there's also time, well, maybe early 2014. I can't remember now exactly. 
But basically, you know, as academic books work, you kind of turn in the manuscript and then it usually takes about a year for the book to actually see the light of day. But we had to make sure that this book was published during the 200th anniversary. That was part of it. Right, right. So um, it was a difficult book to write uh, and it was it was rushed in many ways. Um, uh, You know, we tried to get this thing out as soon as possible. I, 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 I think it turned out okay. I think it turned out as a as a you know a nice contribution and the reviews have been sort of generally positive but it was it was very taxing and it was a lot of hard work and a lot of spent a lot of time many hours kind of trying to to write quickly and get this thing out there so um so that's the story behind the book and then it appeared in april of 2016 uh, a month before the actual date uh, of the um of the two of the 200th anniversary which was i if I remember correctly, it was May 16th was the 200th anniversary. So we made it. Oh, excellent. And yeah. for our listeners, I mean, I did not get the impression that this was a rushed book. It doesn't feel like that. Well, that's, I mean, thank it, you. It, it, <laughs> <laughs> um, you know, I, I think, I think there's, there were just, you know, it wasn't, there's parts of it where there was, um, once the paperback comes, comes out, if you really read it carefully, you'll notice there's some missed copy editing and so forth. I, I'm, I'm embarrassed to say that, but, but I think that was part of the rush, but you know, there's some little things that need to be changed here and there, but, um, but yeah, that's, thank you. I, I, I'm glad that you, uh, you didn't, you didn't feel that way when you read the book. And one thing also, just for our, our listeners, and, and that's one thing that makes this, I think, a particularly interesting book to read, is it, it is, as you say, John, it's kind of, it's like the history of the United States through the perspective of the American Bible Society. Right. And I, and I, I like that as a, oh, go on. No, you're right. That's what I was going for. Exactly. And, and I really, as a historian of religion, I really like that, because I always feel like when I'm, I'm reading a, a text or a of history, it's kind of like, well, you know, religion counts for this. Religion shaped this, and that's often kind of left out. And this kind of says, well, no, religion was interacting very importantly with the events of the day. It wasn't isolated from them. Yeah, and that's that's kind of you know this one of the central theses of the book that, uh, and maybe we can get into this, but the American Bible Society, you know, uh, it's very easy for the historian of religion to focus on the you know, American Bible Society, right? The Bible part of the American Bible Society. And I also did not want to neglect, neglect the fact that this was also a uniquely American organization as well. And I tried to tease out the sort of connections between the attempt to create a kind of Bible-centered nation that the organization kind of had, has always maintained with the kind of sensibilities or identity of the United States that they were also trying to promote. So they were very much wed. And so it was hard to write the book in any other way. It's very difficult also writing an institutional history because there's such a, you know, no one wants to read a kind of blow by blow account of some organization, you know, what happened here and, you know, all these internal kind of intramural things and debates so I thought the only way to make this somewhat interesting is to try to connect it to sort of these larger trends in, in American history. Well, and that seems like a good way to, to kind of segue into that. So um, into the actual kind of the meat of the book. So in, in, in going there, could you tell us a little bit about why, by whom, and for what reason was the American Bible Society formed? And I should also add, when was it formed? Yeah, um, the American Bible Society was founded in 1816 as the first national Bible society in the United States. Now, 
around the turn of the 19th century, in the 1800s, there was uh, uh, several movements uh, at the state and local levels to try to create Bible societies that would um, publish Bibles and distribute Bibles in their locales. So you had, for example, organizations such as the Philadelphia Bible Society or the Bible Society of Massachusetts, right? These sort of local attempts. And in 1816, uh, a group of Christian leaders led by a man named Elias Boudinot, uh, who had a long history uh, with uh, the founding of the American Republic. Boudinot was a lawyer uh, in Elizabethtown, New Jersey. He was a devout Presbyterian. He served as... um, he served as a uh, secretary for prisoners during the American Revolution. He served as the president of the Continental Congress in its last sort of manifestation in 1783. So Boudinot was running the head of the Continental Congress at the, at the end of the American Revolution. He was the one who presided over the Continental Congress uh, at the time of the signing of the Treaty of Paris, which ended the war in 1783. Boudinot then went on to a sort of illustrious career in Congress. Uh, he he was the first um, president, if you will, of, I think that was his title, of the United States Mint. Very, very active, very, very well known, very, very interested in religious causes. Uh, he wrote several kind of theological and religious books um, these massive tomes about, uh, you know, the 12 tribes of Israel, he argued, actually, the, the, law, 12, the, or the lost tribes of Israel were actually Native Americans. He tried to wrote a book about that. He wrote a book about sort of end, the end times, uh, eschatology, you know, when the world was going to end. Uh, and he did this later in life. He took up kind of Bible prophecy and um, so it's very, very active in kind of the, the history of the nation, but also in the sort of world of the, the sort of nascent world, if you will, of what we today we might call American evangelicalism. And it was his idea. He served as the president of the Bible Society of New Jersey. It was his idea to sort of bring all these these scattered Bible societies together under one organization and um you know, it, it didn't go well at first, but in the end, he managed to bring most of them together. There were some groups that did not want to embrace his kind of nationalist vision, the Philadelphia Bible Society being the most prominent. And he formed in 1816 the American Bible Society uh, as a kind of umbrella group that would, um, that would uh, you know, distribute Bibles, publish Bibles, spread the Bible uh, as a text. Uh, throughout uh, the United States, particularly in we- in the western areas where the country was developing, that were were sort of n- didn't have the a- kind of access to printed books and particularly Bibles that uh, that they had uh, in the East. Now, many of the founders of the American Bible Society, people like Elias Boudinot, uh, other names you might recognize, Francis Scott Key uh, was involved in this. Um, the the um, you know, there are many people who served on the board. Charles Coatsworth Pinckney, who actually was a ran for president at one point, you know, and, and a, a long list of people that you'd recognize. 
most of them had a particular political persuasion. Most of them were Federalists. Now, uh, if that name is not, uh, if that's a foreign name to your readers, just think Alexander Hamilton, Broadway, right? The play, <laughs> Hamilton, yeah. right? These were people, Boudinot was a, Boudinot was a great admirer of Hamilton. Uh, these were all Federalists who had a very big vision for the United States, a sort of nationalist vision. So even in their politics, they, uh, they believed that things got done politically with strong central gov- with the str- a strong central government as opposed to localized governments. So there's a lot of interesting comparisons between their political persuasions, uh, strong national governments as opposed to local, and then their attempt to create a national Bible society, right, that, that, uh, as opposed to all the local little scattered groups. So um, the Federalists also tend to believe deeply in um, the role of Christianity in the Republic. So, so it would make sense that a Federalist would be interested in kind of um, advancing the cause of the Bible uh, in America, because that was a great way of sort of producing um, good citizens. Could you talk a little bit more about that? Because it, one thing I thought was interesting, I tend to think of, of people wanting, you know, if they give me a Bible, they want me to read it. And there's a place where I can say like the sinner's prayer. Sure. And I can sign it and, and be saved. Yeah. Um, but that wasn't the only thing they were thinking about. They were also thinking yeah. about moral uplift and the nation. Could you tell us a little bit more about that? Excellent. Yeah. Yeah. Just to reiterate the point that you made, many of these Bible uh, leaders of the Bible Society, what today we would call evangelicals, uh, they believed in the sort of message of salvation, conversion experience. So, so you know, they wanted you to read the Bible and have an encounter with God to be saved, to be born again, you know, all these terms that we use today. Uh, So certainly there was a spiritual mission here, right? But they often framed their vision um, as well in this kind of nationalistic kind of way. Um, The moral improvement, as you mentioned, of, of America. And they were very, very concerned politically with the victory of Thomas Jefferson, in the election of 1800. In the election of 1800, Jefferson defeated John Adams uh, in that election. Adams was obviously running for a second term. Adams was a Federalist. He represented a kind of uh, nation defined by morality and Christianity and so forth. Uh, Jefferson with this, had this long reputation as being kind of a pagan, you know, kind of an infidel, <laughs> somebody, who, somebody who didn't believe in the authority of the Bible or that it was inspired, um, someone who was not a Christian. Uh, and, you know, if the election of 1800 really, you know, if you think the sort of culture wars during our elections today were bad, I mean, this was, you know, this was a really heated, uh, heated election in which religion played an important role. And when, when Jefferson won, uh, Jefferson see, saw his victory as a sort of turning, turning point in the history of the country in which the superstitions of, uh, you know, the, the, the Christian vision for America would be undermined or would be had come to an end. And, you know, he was a big champion of religious liberty and religious freedom. And it's not that Boudinot and the founders of the American Bible Society didn't like religious freedom, uh, but they thought that Christianity was absolutely essential to bring uh, good moral citizens, to produce good moral citizens. In this sense, they were they were in many ways classic Republicans. And I mean that in a sort of uh, small r rather than the political party kind of way. Republicans believe that in order for a republic to survive, the citizenry needed to be virtuous. 
they needed to act out of uh, out of the interests of the nation rather than their own self-interest. They needed to learn how to love their neighbors and live in civility with one another. And the Bible, they believed, was the best way of sort of cultivating these kinds of virtues. So with, with Jefferson and then, you know, obviously Madison and Monroe both follow him. They're both kind of uh, presidents in the kind of Jeffersonian uh, way of thinking. Many of the Federalists who at this point are also beginning to die out on the national scene and become isolated in places like New England and, and New York uh, begin to get very worried. There's a panic there. Boudinot writes a book called The Age of Revelation. And in that book, it's a, it's a counter, a point-by-point point, uh, uh, counter to Thomas Paine's popular book at the time, The Age of Reason, in which Paine said, you know, all these religious stuff is just going to melt away. The Enlightenment is going to advance. Uh, all these kinds of uh, uh, superstitions and religious beliefs will soon disappear, and we will become a, a great society of, of rational thinkers who do not have to rely on supernatural things in order to get by in their everyday lives. And this scared uh, Boudinot and the founders of the American Bible Society to death because this kind of undermined their complete vision for what a good republic should look like. So it was absolutely essential then that the Bible not only got you saved and prepared you for the next world, right, heaven, as they would have understood it, but the Bible was the book that would continue to uh, uh, bring, as you put it, this moral uplift to society and create good Republican citizens. And one thing that, that really struck me, too, about that was you know, they had this faith in that the Bible could do all these things, and their faith was so strong they they didn't want to add any explanations um, yeah. to the Bible, right? I mean, you talk about this, that they're committed to praying the Bible without any kind of notes. Yeah. Could yeah. you tell us a little bit more about why they made that commitment yeah. and what the, the significance of that is? The, the founders of the American Bible Society, especially in the first generation, like to talk uh, about they often use the phrase, the Bible, quote unquote, doing its work, right? In other words, you know, there was almost this kind of magical sort of dimension to the Bible, right? Uh, if you delivered a Bible to a person, even if you didn't preach to them or explain to them what the Bible was or read the Bible to them, if you could somehow put the Bible in somebody's hands, uh, they would read it. And they would be transformed by it. Now, many of them believed, you know, their theology taught them that, you know, the Holy Spirit or God would illuminate the Bible uh, for people. But um, there was no need uh, to explain uh, the Bible because it was it was so commonsensical. It was so, uh, you know, it was, it, was, it was just such a clear message that anyone who read it would understand the gospel. They would be saved and they would understand their responsibility to the larger community, the larger republic. So they didn't put notes in it for that reason. But probably even more importantly, the American Bible Society tried to transcend denominations. They really wanted to be a kind of non-denominational organization. So by putting notes in the Bible, they would be suggesting uh, a means by which to interpret the Bible. Now, some of you who may own Bibles, some of your listeners, you know, they you can get these study Bibles with notes and maps and, you know, concordances and all of these other things. They believe that those weren't needed because 
Well, number one, they weren't needed because the Bible speaks for itself. But number two, they weren't they they shouldn't be there because their goal was ultimately always to provide the Bibles to churches and let them use the Bibles in the way that they want to use them. So a great example of this was was very early on uh, a missionary in um, I think if I remember correctly, it was Burma. Uh, wanted to produce, uh, wanted the American Bible Society to help them with a Burmese translation of the Bible. And these Burmese missionaries um, translated the Bible into English, and they wanted the American Bible Society to print the Bible for them. But the American Bible Society refused to do it, and this was why. This was a Baptist organization, a Baptist mission organization, and in the in the Bible, they took the the missionaries who translated the book took the word uh, baptizo, the Greek word baptizo, and translated it as immerse, right? Meaning that you know they're good Baptists; they want to take you down to the river and, and immerse you in the water, right, to be baptized. And the American Bible Society rejected that that um, effort; they wouldn't publish the Bible because. The, the translation of baptizo as immerse implied a particular version of Christianity and would have alienated all of those denominations, Presbyterians, Methodists, and so forth, who believed in, you know, in, in sprinkling infants, right? So that was just a little theological controversy that existed, but uh, to, to suggest that they would translate that as a, as, a, as a merce would mean they would be advocating a particular brand of Protestantism rather than a kind of universal, uh, universal Protestantism that everybody could believe in. So that's why they decided not to publish the Bible with no, with no, without note or comment was, there, was the line in their constitution. Right? No helps, no notes. No commentary, because that would imply theological reflection or biblical interpretation, and they weren't in the business of doing that. And if I understand correctly, it was the King James, or the uh, what's called the authorized version? Yes, it was the King James version that they used. So, you know, they assumed, obviously, that, you know, the translation of the King James was not... You know, there was no interpretation made there, right? Which was kind of a silly thing to conclude. <laughs> but, you know, any translation, of course, is an interpretation. But this was this was the uh, this was the Bible uh, that was the most popular Bible in America at the time, and it was really not until uh, the mid twentieth century that the American Bible Society actually began translating and publishing and distributing any Bible other than the King James. Right, right. And so how then, I mean, and they start off with this, you know, we're not going, we're just going to do King James, we're not going to do any kind of notes. And then they change, right? They, they add, they add helps later on the, yeah. the Baptists, I think, are, the, I think it's the Southern Baptists are allowed to have like a sticker put right. in that, that has like the sinner's prayer. Yeah. And, and then they make their, was it the good news for modern man? Yep. How did they, they make that shift? These are huge debates within the American Bible Society. I mean, you know, some of the some of the you know, there's just there's just tons of records about them debating this shift and so forth. Um, the shift really happens in kind of uh, kind of two ways. Um, you know, around the mid 20th century or so, uh, in terms of the King James, you know, just to address that issue quickly, um, the Revised Standard Version, the RSV, becomes very, very popular in the 1950s. This is a new translation of the Bible. It's somewhat controversial because of the way in which the kind of mainline uh, liberal theologians associated with the National Council of Churches and the World Council of Churches 
translated certain words. So, for example, you know, in Isaiah 7, 14, where it says, uh, you know, a virgin shall conceive in the King James, they changed that to a young woman because the Hebrew word there was best, you know, didn't imply uh, a virgin. So they tried, you know, they, they made a, the RSV made a kind of academic decision, right? Not a theological decision, right? The word there uh, is, is, um, young woman. So that's how they translate. Well, people who, you know, evangelicals and conservatives who believe in the virgin birth were upset with this because now their Bible didn't say that Mary was a virgin. So, so this became a really problematic translation for a lot of, um, especially evangelicals and conservatives, but the American Bible society, uh, always had strong relations in the 1950s with mainline Protestant denominations. They were very active in the world council of churches, the uh, national council of churches, and um, they embraced the, the the RSV, so they began selling the RSV as well. And then they started getting involved in their own translation. So in the 1960s, uh, under the leadership of a uh, their their main Bible translator, a man named Eugene Nida, uh, they published uh, the famous Good News for Modern Man New Testament, which was a a Bible that was written in sort of plain language. It was translated uh, rather word for word. It was translated concept for concept. Uh, this allowed them to, um, you know, be a little freer with the language. Some of your listeners who are familiar with Bibles might think of a lot of these kind of paraphrase Bibles today. You know, the, the Message or some other kind of Bible that um, you know takes takes liberties with the text but yet still wants to convey the meaning of the text. And the Good News Bible was the first kind of Bible uh, to be part of this, to, to, to work on this type of translation. And it took off. I mean, it sold millions, this Bible. It was the, it was the best-selling paperback uh, in the United States uh, in, in, in the 19, late 1960s. It passed like Dr. Spock's book on baby care and you know, a, bunch of other, uh, a bunch of other of these popular paperbacks. Eventually, what eventually what happened is, you know, slowly but surely, uh, the American Bible Society would produce Bibles like the one you mentioned for the Southern Baptists that would have the sinner's prayer in there or, you know, they would publish them for uh, big denominational events. And and but it was never, uh, you know, they, they struck these agreements where they would put a Southern Baptist stamp or something in the books. But the real change happened actually in the 1990s. Uh, and that was when one of the presidents, uh, the new president of the American Bible Society, uh, a man by the name of Eugene Habecker, uh, was became the president. And he was an evangelical Christian as opposed to a more mainline Protestant Christian and was really, really wanted to move the American Bible Society in a more evangelical direction. Uh, as he would put it, I interviewed him extensively for the book. As he would put it, he just thought it was too heavily mainline and there were not enough evangelical voices. So he would describe it in terms of balance, right? We wanted more more balanced voices. But ultimately, Habecker wanted to bring a kind of clear evangelical mission to the American Bible Society. He has this kind of revelatory moment where he's watching TV, Jay Leno, late at night, and he's Jay Leno's on the streets of Pasadena or wherever he is, Hollywood, interviewing people about the Bible, and they know, you know, they know nothing about it. They can't name any of the Bible characters or anything. Habecker gets very concerned because he realizes that a lot of people own Bibles, but no one's reading them. 
right? And because they don't know how to read them. They don't know what to do. With. They, don't, they don't have the helps and the guides and the commentary that they need to do it. And Habegger begins to push the, 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 um, the organization away from an organization devoted completely to or simply to the distribution of Bible to help the churches to a more of a ministry in which this is now going to be an organization that's going to continue to distribute the Bible. It's going to continue to do what it's always done, but now it's going to start creating special study Bibles and working with denominations to produce Bibles that are useful. Um, You know, they're going to be uh, much more interested in um, the salvation message and preaching. And so, so they become much more of a kind of, Christian ministry than necessarily a kind of book distributor organization that has a Christian mission. I don't know if that, if that makes any sense. So that was the change. And it was at that point that the notes and comments uh, in the mid nineties, the notes and comments were no longer uh, uh, were taken out of the constitution of the organization so that they could be free to be able to, uh, to, to, to produce these kinds of study Bibles and commentaries and so forth. Right. And uh, that highlights, and I, I hope that our, our listeners, I mean, I want to highlight this, it's kind of come through, is that this is still a living, breathing organization. The, the American Bible Society still exists. It's So this is an ongoing history. I mean, that came through, but I just wanted to state it explicitly. <laughs> yeah. Um, I mean, you know, the, or early in your in your first question, right? I mean, you asked me how I came about to write the book. You know, the American right, Bible Society yeah. right, contacted me. After 199 years they uh, decided to move from New York City to Philadelphia, and they're now located um, right in the heart of the historic district in Philadelphia. Uh, if you ever go to Philadelphia uh, you'll, and you're visiting Independence Hall or the Liberty Bell, you'll, you'll look up and you'll see the, the big kind of red brick building, the Wells Fargo Bank Building. They have two floors in the Wells Fargo Bank Building, and they actually have access to the, to, the, to the lobby where they're producing a sort of Bible in America kind of exhibit, you know, that they're hoping will, will attract people who are also there to see, um, to see the, you know, the Independence Hall or Liberty Bell or some of these other things. And one thing also for our listeners, they, um, the John's book is actually arranged chronologically, uh, but because of the richness, I thought it would be good, and because of the time limitations, for us to look at this these questions thematically. Yeah. And one question, and, and one thing I, I was really glad to see you devote several chapters to, was to the relationship between the American Bible Society and African Americans, and how that's yeah. developed and changed over time, and some of the complexities with that relationship. So I wonder if you could tell us a bit about that. Sure. I'll, I'll just say this. I'll just say this up front. Um, this was one of the areas that was a sensitive area. Um, if the American Bible Society today, if there's things that the American Bible Society today may not necessarily be uh, happy with with the book, although they have to acknowledge it, is the way I I was some. I mean, you know, it's a straight history, so I'm trying to be as objective as I possibly can, but. You know, I raised some of the some of these issues in a critical way uh, in the book about their relationship with African-Americans um, before the Civil War. Well, first of all, the American Bible Society was a white organization. There were no African-Americans in leadership or anything, which you might expect for, for before the Civil War. Uh, the big controversy with African-Americans in the American Bible Society came in the 1830s and 1840s when um, the there were many kind of anti-slavery and abolitionist organizations in the country who wanted the American Bible Society to distribute Bibles 
uh, to the to the slaves in the South on the plantations and to work with their local auxiliary organizations. An auxiliary organization would be one of those local Bible societies, uh, you know, like for example, the South Carolina Bible Society or something that that worked in close relationship with the American Bible Society and paid dues to the American Bible Society and so forth. But there was a lot of push by northern abolitionists, especially those associated with the American uh, Anti-Slavery Society, to bring Bibles to the slaves uh, in the hopes that, you know, the liberating message of the Bible, salvation, freedom, right, would would um, would uh, give them hope or even maybe even prompt plantation owners and so forth to uh, to um, free the slaves. You know, that was a, a long shot. But. They wanted to put the Bible in the hands of the slaves to at least help them to grow spiritually. I don't think the idea of them participating in the sort of moral uplift of the nation was at the heart of this this concern as much as their salvation and their spiritual growth. The American Bible Society, uh, again, in their constitution, the Bible Society said we will only distribute Bibles through our auxiliary agencies. So how it would work was an auxiliary agency like the South Carolina Bible Society would ask the American Bible Society, the, the Bible House, as it was called in New York, to publish Bibles for them. And they would the, the New York office would send them down and then they would be distributed by the auxiliaries, not by the American Bible Society themselves. Well, there were reports coming back that a lot of the southern um, the southern auxiliaries, which were controlled by slaveholders and wealthy plantation owners, were not willing to give Bibles to the slaves for a variety of reasons, some of which I just mentioned. The American Anti-Slavery Society uh, said, you know, you, to the American Bible Society, and what's interesting is there were a lot of members that were on the boards of both organizations at the time. You know, we need to get the Bibles to these people, to, and and the American Bible, these slaves, and the American Bible Society said, no, we it violates our constitution, right? Uh, if these local auxiliaries, like the South Carolina Bible Society, does not want to distribute Bibles to slaves, there's nothing we can do about it. They have local autonomy to make the decisions about distribution as they see fit. So the American Bible, the American Anti-Slavery Society actually on two different occasions offered like large amounts of cash to the American Bible Society to help fund a project to to bring Bibles to slaves. And because of their constitutional concerns and their willing their, their desire to stay true to their constitution, the American Bible Society would not take the money nor bring Bibles to slaves. Um, which they took a lot of heat for uh, among the northern uh, northern evangelical community, which was largely anti-slavery and abolitionist. After the Civil War, uh, the the American Bible Society really operates under uh, a kind of Jim Crow. Well, maybe not Jim Crow, but a separate but equal kind of coming out of the Supreme Court decision of Plessy versus Ferguson in the eighteen nineties. You know, the idea is yes. We will, we will have a colored, as they would call it, a colored agency to distribute Bibles to colored people, right? And again, this idea of separate but equal, right? There's, we'll have a white organization and a colored organization, much like the country schools, right, are divided between white schools and black schools. So the, there's a very vibrant colored agency in the South uh, led by a, a, a man, a reverend, a, a minister named John Ragg. Uh, that distributes distributes Bibles throughout the South has a very very broad reach. Uh, some of their high moments were distributing Bibles to poor blacks during the 1927 Mississippi flood, uh, other kind of disasters, and so forth. Um, 
so they were they were viewed as kind of an agency of the American Bible Society uh, dealing with the African American population there. And then I guess by the time you get to the 1950s uh, and segregation is coming under attack by the civil rights movement, the American Bible Society decides to uh, to to uh, they realize that they're they've been functioning under this form of segregation too with their colored agency and they end the colored agency and, and integrate their work with African-Americans into the larger organization. Excellent. And I thought it was also interesting because you, you know, you continue the story and I thought it was that they came out with, um, you know, they, they d- deliberately like kind of tried to refute um, anti-Christian black power ideology. Yeah. Right. I thought that was really striking. Yeah. Which, you know, they, yes, and, yes and no. I mean, they, they, they were clearly on the side of the civil, when it comes to the civil rights movement, they were clearly on the side of the sort of King nonviolent, uh, but nonviolent kind of, kind of way. Cause they believed that anger and violence and black, this kind of black power was not really fitting with the message of the Bible. At least that's what the leadership at the time believed. Right. Right. That was very interesting. And, and I also wonder too, one, another thing that you kind of explore in this book, and you mentioned this earlier is that these, these, um, missionaries in Burma, uh, they come up to the American Bible Society and say, you know, could you produce these Bibles for us? And they said, no, because of issues with translation, not, no, we're the American Bible Society. So how does the American Bible Society get involved internationally? Yeah, well, in the original constitution that Boudinot helped to write in 1816, uh, there's nothing in there that says, you know, we are only going to be an American organization. So there's always the possibility of them moving, you know, outside of the United States. Uh, they really do not engage, um, other than Canada and Mexico, they really do not get engage outside of the United States until, um, until they, until the, I think it's the 1850s, they get involved in the Ottoman Empire and the area known as the Levant, working mostly with, um, both uh, Muslims and Orthodox Christians. Are you still there? Yeah, yeah, I'm here. Okay, mostly Orthodox, mostly Orthodox Christians and and Muslims in the in the Levant. This this becomes a, a real turning point for the American Bible Society because the, the the leadership of the Bible Society is really divided about how they should conceive of their international work. So there are some who believe in the kind of traditional way that we are a Bible distribution agency. So when they established their international headquarters in in Turkey, in in then Constantinople, there are some who say, right, we are here to support missionaries, evangelical Protestant missionaries, right? We will build our headquarters, we will produce Bibles here, and then distribute them to the missionaries so they can use them in their ministry. There are others who believe that the American Bible Society should be doing the missionary work themselves. Uh, So this is an ongoing debate that takes place in their international work. What does the American Bible Society do? Are they there to support indigenous churches, local churches, uh, missionaries, or are they there to actually... um, preach the gospel themselves. So what you have is you have uh, them working alongside missionaries. And sometimes it gets very confusing because you have missionaries who are preaching the gospel message to people in China or in Levant or Latin America. Eventually they become global. There's, there's not a place in the world that the American Bible Society is not present 
uh, around the turn of the 20th century, which, which, which fits very well with kind of America's kind of imperialistic uh, uh, expansion during this period. So, so you have these missionaries, but then you have like running alongside of them are the, are the coal porters, the, the booksellers, right? Who are not only just selling Bibles like a bookseller would sell any book, but they're also kind of saying, and here, here's the Bible. And, you know, yes, we know if it does its work, we don't have to preach, but they also get into sort of preaching sometimes too. So there's a lot of debates within the American Bible Society about how do we you know, what, what is our role? What, what role do we play? And in, in many ways, um, the winners in that debate are the kind of distributors, the distributor side, right? We're just here to distribute books and sell books. And the American Bible Society through this almost takes on, and it comes back home to the United States, they take on a kind of business model, right? We're a business. We're, we're a business that sells Bibles, right? So, you know, we need to make sure we're selling Bibles or else we're going to go out of business, Um even as they're also taking in donations and so forth, like any charitable organization would be as well. So I think it's the international context that helps this. It also puts them at odds, at least very, very early at odds with the British Foreign Bible Society, which is operating in the same places. So you also have these kinds of battles for turf, turf wars over who gets what part of the Levant or what part of China or. And it's really not until uh, after World War Two that they finally get together and say, like, we need to work together on all this kind of stuff. So the international international stuff, I have several chapters. I just picked a few regions to focus on um, the Levant, China, Mexico. Uh, in Latin America, but um, that's a whole story in and of itself. And, you know, someone who studies missionaries or global Christianity, there is just a wealth of material on this, um, on these on American Bible Society's role in the 19th and 20th century in these places that is completely untapped and can really, uh, really needs to be developed by, by, by a good historian who can, who can, you know, do a lot better job than I did in a kind of massive kind of survey uh, of the organization. Well, and, and I, I just uh, I have to point to, of course, you covered Korea, too, which made me very happy being a Koreanist. They had a couple pages. Yeah. yeah. Works. I was glad to see that. The Korean story is a really interesting one in their involvement in the Korean War and so forth. So, yeah, that and Japan. And yeah, great. So I, I wonder, too, then, you know, you, we just mentioned you just told us a little bit about the international engagement um, and that's kind of in a peaceful missionary sense. There was also um, an engagement in the wars that the United States would be involved in, both of the hot and cold varieties. So I wonder if you could tell us a little bit, what did the what kinds of things did the American Bible Society do during times of war? You know, war is one of uh, war is wars are one of the great kind of, uh, you know, if you if you talk to anyone who or read any kind of popular history or go online and look for the American Bible Society or read their Wikipedia page. The American Bible Society takes great pride in their work with American soldiers. Uh, they are present in one way or another in every American war uh, after the War of 1812, uh, beginning with the Mexican-American War, largely in terms of the distribution of Bibles. Uh, they are become deeply committed to bringing uh, the Bible to troops uh, in the field. Uh, it begins, again, in the Mexican-American War. It really reaches uh, uh, a sort of, I wouldn't say a high point, but it really 
begins to get national attention, their work during the Civil War. They work very closely with the U.S. Christian Commission. The American Bible Society, coal porters and Bible sellers are not allowed on the front lines uh, during the Civil War. So they have to work with the Christian Commission uh, to get their Bibles uh, to the soldiers. You know, the, the records of the American Bible Society during the 1860s are just filled with these sensational stories. You know, I try to deal with them the best I can in the book. Um, you know, of, of soldiers, you know, having, you've heard these stories, right? Soldiers having a Bible, a pocket Bible in their shirt, and then they get hit by a mini ball or a bullet and it hits the Bible right on their chest. And, and, you know, they, they're, they're saved as a result, right? They don't die. It stops the bullet. You know, so there's all kinds of stories like this. Actually, the American Bible Society today has the largest, second largest collection of Bibles uh, in the world next to the Vatican. They have a huge <laughs> library, library of Bibles, and um, there are several Bibles in there with bullets, uh, with oh wow, with bullets stuck in. I argue that there's uh, and talking to the. It's interesting. I don't know how deep to get into this with you, but it, it's interesting in talking to uh, the the librarian there who who knows these this collection inside and out. Uh, we kind of both concluded that there's no way that a, a Bible in a pocket, a pocket Bible, could stop a bullet. So most likely these bullets are kind of stray bullets, you know, things that kind of, you know, not direct shots, in other words, or scrap, scraps of bullets that hit the, hit the Bibles. So, but yeah, the Civil War, you know, uh, World War One, World War Two, uh, they're, they're distributing millions of Bibles to both, uh, you know, in World War Two, both uh, to the, to the uh, Atlantic front and the Pacific front. Uh, they begin to, they be, they produce these kind of special military veter, you know, military Bibles, you know, some of them have sort of camouflage covers on them um, and, and really take a great deal of pride in this kind of distribution, distribution effort. And uh, even up to, um, even up to, you know, the, the, the Iran, uh, Iraq, Iran, or I should say Iraq, Afghanistan, these kinds of things, they're still present in the field producing these, producing these Bibles. And, um, you know, they, they like, of course, their, their literature, their promotional literature is always referencing this or that soldier that read the Bible in a foxhole or something and, and got saved or took, you know, found comfort and, you know, they, the, the, the soldiers write home. And so it's a really interesting kind of human interest story, but also shows their, uh, their commitment to the United States military. We're getting more towards the end of the, our interview. And I, I would like to, if you're okay, John, I want to ask something about a couple of the pictures Sure. That appears. I can do my best on that, yeah. Okay. Well, I, just to kind of go back, you know, um, and this is especially for our listeners, John had talked about how he was initially asked to um, write a popular, more of a popular history, and he and he wanted to write more of an academic one. And one thing, to I think, to your credit, John, was this is a easy-to-read academic work. And so our listeners who are, you know, thinking about, oh, should I look at this or not, it's, it's not a dry work at all. It's very interesting. It's very well-written. And... One thing that I think makes it particularly attractive, especially if you're thinking in, in terms of the classroom, is it just has all these amazing pictures yeah. um, in the middle of the book. There's a lot of really cool pictures that really encapsulate this. And there's two images, I think, that are, are particularly cool. One is the cover image, which is <laughs> of a man um, with a kind of a kiosk set up. And he's, it's, it's, I think it's from the early 1920s, and he's got an American flag. And I wish, John, could you tell us a little bit about that image? You know, when I was looking for a cover image for the book... 
you know, again, I, I talked about this earlier in the interview. I wanted an image that reflected both the American and the Bible, right? The American Bible right. Society. And I, I said, there's got to be, again, at full access, the, the, I mean, what you see in the book is like less than 1%, uh, probably one-tenth of 1% of the, of the photos that they have. Uh, just amazing archives. And I really wanted a picture kind of with something patriotic and the Bible in it. And, um, you know, it's got a kind of carnivalesque feel to it, the picture. Um, but it's a guy holding an American flag and he's selling Bibles. And it almost looks like he belongs on Coney Island or some kind of, uh, you know, county fair or something. Yeah, come uh, right up and get the scriptures. Exactly. And, <laughs> and, you know, the American Bible Society had that kind of, you know, they were at every World's Fair you know, they, they, they love the kitsch kind of stuff. You know, I mean, if you see the picture on the cover, this guy's got, I, if I remember correctly, I don't have the book in front of me. He's got like a handlebar mustache, I think. Yep, that's, that's right. <laughs> you know? And, um, you know, it's interesting about that picture. Um, there were a lot of people in the American Bible Society who didn't like my choice of the picture because it made them look kind of too honky-tonk or carnivalesque. Oh, no. You know, so. Um, so it looks so, awesome. I- <laughs> there, are, there are others who just loved it. And. So, so yeah, I love that picture because it so captures, I think, everything about the kind of, you know, the kind of consumerism, right? Get a bot, you know, bot cheap Bibles, uh, you know, they're, they're only five cents or 10 cents, right? And support the country, support the kingdom of God and, and, the, and the church, right? So I, I think it, it best exemplifies everything I was trying to do uh, in the book. Yeah, no, I love it. I, I love it. And I think that's something that will attract students and, and more, you know, even people who aren't scholars are going to get a lot out of this. And I the appreciate, by image, the way, oh. let me just say this, I appreciate your comment about the, the way it reads. Um, you know, I, 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 I try, you know, it's, it's published with an academic press, but it's really, I really wrote it as kind of a trade book, a history book that would be, you know, accessible. I wanted to write this book not only for academics, uh, but uh, even more so for you know, there's just been there's been hundreds of thousands of people who have given money to the American Bible Society, who contribute, you know, are interested in the Bible, and I wanted to write a kind of compelling story for them that just didn't seem too kind of overly institutional or too scholarly. So I appreciate your comments. Oh, thank oh, you. Thank you. And, and the kind of image to maybe to kind of end with that I, that was really striking. I think it really perhaps captures maybe we could I don't know say it captures the soul of the the ABS. Uh, in in addition to this, the, the man with the wonderful handlebar mustache is uh, it's it's figure fifteen. Uh, and I'll read the caption: Navajo woman using an ABS finger phono, 1959. Could you could you tell <laughs> us about the finger phonos? Those it's such a cool picture. Go out and buy the book. So you can yeah. see the picture, but can you tell us about about this this Navajo woman using a finger phono? In the 1950s, um, you know, the American Bible Society was, and we probably won't get too far into this, but the American Bible Society always liked to pride themselves on being on the, on the cutting edge of technology. Sometimes they were, sometimes they were so far on the cutting edge that they were like off the charts, and they they some they tried some crazy stuff, and it just never it never caught on. The finger phono was in the 1950s. They developed a device. I'm going to have a hard time kind of explaining this, but they developed a device in which uh, they had kind of um, a, a, a almost like a mini kind of phonograph in which you stuck a, a disc. They, they sold these discs of different books of the Bible. 
So you put the phonograph, the little disc on the kind of mini phonograph that you see in the picture. And then it had a little groove in it that you could put your finger in. And as you, you cranked the, you cranked the, uh, the, the little disc, it started, you know, it started speaking, right? It started reading you the scripture. Um, and they initially tried this thing out. Their first test on this was with um, the Navajo Indians. Uh, I think it was the book of John, or I can't remember which Bible book it was, but uh, translations into Navajo. So this was a way before they were, they actually published books in the Navajo language. They created these finger phones and they gave them out among the Navajo tribes so they could experiment with them. And I guess the experiment was enough of a success that they tried to market these things kind of nationwide. They didn't really last very long, but uh, it's just one of those great examples of um, the American Bible Society trying some sort of innovative stuff that kind of uh, quickly fell flat. So it's uh, it really is a window into their kind of attempts at innovation. Now, having said that, they were also, you know, they also were on the cutting edge of a lot of other things like the steam powered presses um, they were the first ones to get involved in in Braille and radio and TV. And even in the 80s, they were like making music videos before, like, you know, they were the first one to seize on the kind of MTV generation to promote the Bible. Uh, but, you know, there's also a lot of like different crazy things they came up with that didn't really stick. And the finger phono was one of them. But the very fact that they tried it out with the Navajo Indians, I thought was really fascinating. And I thought one thing that just just really struck me about that. I mean, the image is is just wonderful. Um, you know, it just it has this very dignified woman using this this uh, machine. I mean, that's one of the tensions I think in Protestant Christianity is what do you? I mean, you're supposed to read your Bible, but what happens if you can't read? Yeah. And I thought the the finger phono is aimed at people like that, and it's this wonderful way of trying to deal with that tension yep. while in the same way treating this this uh, these illiterate people with with a lot of dignity. Yeah, absolutely. That's a wet, very well put. Better than I could have put it, I think. Um, this is another huge question. You know, we, if we had another hour, we could go into it. But, you know, one of the things that I continued to grapple with, and as I interviewed people, I, I did maybe 30 interviews for this book, as I interviewed people who used to work in the American Bible Society and those who continue to do so. The big question kept arising, like, what is the Bible? Right? I mean, you know, what happens to the Bible when it's no longer... Um, a print, you know, in print, right? You know, so what happens when you have like, you know, now they have these, the American Bible site does these things where you get like a text of a verse sent to you every day, right? You know, what what happens when, when you know, you pull verses out of the larger context of a biblical book or passage? And then, you know, what happens, you know, does the Bible always have to be in kind of book form? And the American Bible Society wrestled with these things, Um through much of its 20th century history. And I think the finger phone is an example of that. Well, good deal. Well, uh, we've taken a lot of your time. Uh, if, if it's all right, just take a little bit more to ask our traditional question. What are you working on now? Oh, that's a great question. Some things I can tell you, some things I can't. Uh, <laughs> I got a few things in the works that I'll be releasing shortly, but, um, you know, I continue to blog every day at thewayofimprovement.com. Uh, if you're interested in American history, American religion, you know, kind of academic life. Uh, like I said, that's a big part now of my kind of professional profile. We do about seven, eight, nine posts a day. So it's pretty active blog. And we do a podcast uh, called the way of improvement leads home podcast. So I'm a little familiar with podcasts on the other end of the table, <laughs> so to speak, where we interview historians. 
Um, for the last several years, I've been working on a new book on the American Revolution, uh, particularly, oh, excellent. particularly looking at the role that religion played uh, in the American Revolution. So that's been my kind of ongoing project. Um, I'm under contract uh, to finish that book soon. So uh, uh, there'll be, you know, just just stay in touch. I'm, you could also find me. I, I do a lot of tweeting, too. You could find me at John Fia one uh, if you want to sort of follow kind of the things that I'm doing. But, yeah, stay, trying to stay busy. Excellent. Excellent. Well, well, it sounds like it may be possible to have you on again then if you if you continue to publish like this. Well, I'd love to come back. Oh, well, we'd love to have you. Well, thank you very much for giving us so much of your time, John. You have a great day, and thank you to also to our listeners for tuning in. All right. Well, thank you. It was, it was a lot of fun. This has been the Christian Studies Channel of the New Books Network. I'm Dr. Franklin Roush of Lander University, the host of the channel. I want to thank you for listening to this interview, and I hope you'll come back and listen to another one soon.